Welcome to another edition of Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host and the editor of thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal. This week, we're going to cover the Department of Justice's recent indictment of the African People's Socialist Party for supposedly acting as an agent of Russian intelligence to promote what the DOJ calls Russian propaganda inside the United States. We're also going to cover the announcement by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of a run for the presidency within a Democratic Party that he heavily criticized as the party of fear, censorship, and war. But first, we turn to bombshell revelations in a court case of two 9-11 hijackers having been recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency and that same CIA unit stonewalling the FBI in the months leading up to the 9-11 attacks and possibly allowing it to happen. I was joined by my colleague, Aaron Maté. Let's take a listen. All right, let's turn to some actual journalism. Here is the latest from the gray zone. Here's the headline. Bombshell filing 9-11 hijackers were CIA recruits. At least two 9-11 hijackers had been recruited into a joint CIA-Saudi intelligence operation that was covered up at the highest level, according to an explosive new court filing. This is by the gray zone's Kit Clarenberg. So, Max, talk to us about this story. Yeah, let me pull this up because I, I want to um, refer to it. But this is something that this is an episode that I wrote about in the management of savagery. And we've now gained new insights and shocking new details. Actually, I wouldn't even say it's shocking. I would say our worst fears about this particular episode have been seemingly confirmed uh, through a 2021 court filing, which was just released, um, which came in the form of a 21-page declaration by the lead investigator of the Office of Military Commissions, which is overseeing the cases of the 9-11 defendants. His name is Don Canestraro. And he had interviewed several FBI agents who were involved in investigating 9-11 and seeking actually to prevent the attack in the months leading up to the attack. So basically... This relates to two of the hijackers, the so-called muscle hijackers who were charged with um, overwhelming the, one of them was a muscle hijacker, overwhelming the passengers and getting to the cockpit. The other one was a pilot, uh, Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. These were Saudi citizens who had attended a Al-Qaeda, they called it like a mega summit. And it was a gathering of top Al-Qaeda figures in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, back in January, 20, in January 2000. Now, during that summit, which, again, it was a major Al-Qaeda summit. During that summit, CIA agents broke into the hotel room of Al-Hazmi and Al-Midhar on January 5th and January 8th and photographed their passports. They were being monitored by the CIA. The CIA knew they were there and they knew that something was being planned, something like the day of planes attack, which was already within the, kind of in the pipeline that was heavily monitored by US, Pakistani intelligence, all sorts of intelligence services. So Al-Hazmi and Al-Midhar were able to then, following this summit, from Malaysia, board a direct flight to LA International Airport, get off the flight, 
without any screening and then be met at the airport by Omar Al-Bayoumi, Omar Bayoumi, who was posing as an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority and was in fact a Saudi intelligence officer who then took these two characters, Al-Qaeda figures, to an apartment, paid for their lease, and then arranged for them to receive rides in taxis to flight lessons while shepherding them to and from local Saudi-sponsored mosques. This should have set off alarm bells everywhere, but the CIA refused to tell the FBI that they, these figures were in the country. The CIA was operating through a shady unit known as Alex Station, which had been set up in tandem with the FBI, but which operated outside the FBI's purview and was a, essentially a black operation charged with the ability to recruit assets. And so not only did the CIA refuse to tell the FBI about these two would-be hijackers in the U.S., they forbade FBI agents assigned to Alex Station from telling other FBI agents. Why would they do that? Why would they be so determined to avoid the detection of these two dangerous figures as they were being shepherded through the U.S. by Saudi intelligence? Well, it's clear now, as was everyone suspected through Don Canestraro's filing, that they had been recruited by the CIA and were CIA assets, whether they knew it or not, and that Omar Bayoumi, the Saudi intelligence agent, was himself a CIA asset working in a U.S.-Saudi joint intelligence operation. And this raises a lot of questions, which we'll get to, but here's the, the um, statement of an agent known simply as C3 in this filing said that Bayoumi's contact with the hijackers and his support thereafter was done at the behest of the CIA through the Saudi intelligence service. And the explicit purpose of Alex Station was to, quote, recruit Al-Hazbi and Al-Midhar via a li liaison relationship. And so as Kit Clarenberg details in this excellent article, which really puts all of this into context, the FBI was not told about Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi's presence in the U.S., or the fact that I think one of them was actually the roommate of the lead 9-11 hijacker, Mohammed Atta, at one point, which would have just wrapped up the whole operation until the operation was in its final stages and they had already gone to New York. Uh, and in, at, even at that point, it was not made a law enforcement investigation, which would have necessitated arrests. It was simply an intelligence investigation, which necessitated nothing more than surveillance. So the C you can just point a finger directly at Langley, at the CIA, and at Alex Station and say, you are responsible for letting 9-11 happen. That is the most conservative analysis we can put forward. But we can also raise certain questions about this. Max, you know, this reminds me of another episode you write about in the management of savagery, which is the Manchester bombing in the UK, where the MI5 had basically worked with the bomber uh, involved and not properly alerted authorities to his presence. And uh, that failure set in stage the events that led that bombing to happen, like the, the, the bombing at the Ariana Grande concert. Is that well, a fair this, ha this happens all the time. I mean, this happens all the time when... 
assets are recruited and then they're protected by the intelligence services. Um, we've seen it in bombings in Germany and France too, that they all they uh, often had prior contact with the intelligence services and it gets swept under the rug. In the case of Salem Abedi, who was the Manchester bomber responsible for the worst terror attack in, I believe in British history, just ripping to shreds uh, close to 20 young girls at a concert. He was trained with ISIS in Syria. And before that, he worked with his father, Ramadan Abedi, who is an MI5 asset from Manchester on the battlefield in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. And the MI5 had been maintaining this community of Libyan expats, exiles in Manchester as one of their anti-Qaddafi cards. And then once the uh, dirty war in Libya began, the insurgency, they just turned them loose. They all got special visas to leave, exit visas to go to Libya. And when it was all over, Salam Abedi and his father were picked up by a British Royal Navy boat in Libya and taken home. I mean, it was that clearly a British operation. And so with those tactics and the ideology that he absorbed in Syria and Libya, he then went and targeted his own neighbors, his own countrymen. So uh, we're going to have more on the Manchester bombing at the Gray Zone. But back to this, this story, I mean, the, it was all covered up at the highest level uh, for years and years, and we were, we're only getting these details now. And then the personnel who oversaw this operation at Alex Station were promoted, uh, including the uh, FBI... The, 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 the FBI person who was placed inside Alex Station, who did not tell other FBI personnel about Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi's presence inside the U.S., Dina Corsi, she's been promoted. I think she's like the deputy director of counterintelligence for the FBI, and she was actually in touch with Pete Strzok during the whole Operation Crossfire Hurricane episode when this FBI unit was actually trying to stir up an investigation of Donald Trump over uh, Russian collusion. So she's still there. Then you have, yeah, de she's deputy assistant director for intelligence. If you look at her LinkedIn page and then um, you have um, the, the, the successor of the first head of Alex station. The first head is named Richard Blee. His successor was Alfreda Francis B Bukowski. Um, who joined the CIA's operations division and was a really influential figure in the war on terror, as Kit Clarenberg writes. And he actually oversaw the quote-unquote enhanced interrogations or torture of 9-11 suspects, which influenced heavily the Senate Intelligence Committee's report. Uh, well, no, the Senate Intelligence Committee's report found that Bukowski was a key player in this, this torture program. And what was the point of the torture program? It was to extract confessions that would essentially back up the official narrative. Our understanding of 9-11 is heavily influenced by the confessions of suspects who were placed under heavy duress through torture overseen by Bukowski. So you understand the double, the, the, the conflict of interest there or the corruption there is that Bukowski is able to cover up what Alex Station did by fueling the entire narrative, by forcing 
presumably forcing suspects to say what he wanted. I mean, this is just insane levels of corruption that we're talking about. And uh, so it raises questions. I mean, I think, you know, it raises this piece went viral and many people want to draw the most conspiratorial conclusion possible, which is that the CIA directed the 9-11 attacks in some form. Then there's the conclusion that could be drawn that the CIA allowed the 9-11 attacks to go forward in order to create space to advance uh, the goals of the neocons and militaristic hardliners across the Middle East who needed a what Paul Wolfowitz called months before 9-11 a, a catalyzing event. Uh, and then you could just simply draw the conclusion, the most conservative conclusion, which is that the CIA was so desperate to get sources inside Al-Qaeda and penetrate this organization that they were willing to overlook all of the warning signs that a massive attack was about to take place and prevent the FBI from knowing about it and then cover its own tracks. So one of those three conclusions or all three or some combination of them is true. And I wonder where this leaves the 9-11 families who have been trying to seek answers about the, you know, Saudi Arabia's role in 9-11 for years. There was that release of those missing pages uh, recently, but even those pages were still redacted. And I wonder if those redactions have to do with some of the disclosures that were made here in this in this court filing. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been forgotten. The 9-11 families have been sort of forgotten. And Obama, under Obama, I think a law was passed to prevent them from suing the Saudi government. It was right. passed in the Senate. Yeah. So, yeah. And the whole 9-11 attack has been placed in the rearview mirror. Um, I'm looking forward to the cover-up investigation of the creation of the next pandemic. I don't know when that's going to take place, but I mean, we're just so deluged in psyops that this has just been swept under the rug. But what the point that I want to make and the conclusion I want to take away is that every step of the way from 9-11 through the entire history of Al-Qaeda there has been the hand of the CIA directing it, influencing it, supporting it, training it, or just simply paving the pathway for Al-Qaeda to transform into from this local organization that was fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan to a global organization. And so we're talking about from 1979, when Zbigniew Brzezinski laid this so-called bear trap for the Red Army in Afghanistan by arming, you know, working with the CIA to arm the Mujahideen, which allowed bin Laden to come in and start the Services Bureau and Peshawar and begin bringing the foreign fighters in who then got their training and then moved abroad. From there to 9-11, which completely reshaped American politics in the worst way possible, to the Syrian dirty war in which Al-Qaeda's rebranded uh, new entity I don't even know what it's called, the Salvation Front. It was called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, but it's really Al-Qaeda in Syria. They control, they still control the northwestern province of Idlib. Uh, so this, and that was a complete NATO operation. So that's the conclusion that I want to draw. That's what the management of savagery is about. And we're still getting the details to fill in these uh, disturbing 
these to, to fill in these disturbing outlines. You've been listening to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. That was my conversation with my colleague, Aaron Maté, about revelations that the CIA had in fact recruited two would-be hijackers who wound up attacking the United States on 9-11. We now turn to the Department of Justice's indictment of several members of the African People's Socialist Party, a radical black organization based in St. Petersburg, Florida, that has been active in local politics, has upset the local democratic establishment, and is now accused of acting as agents of Russian intelligence to spread what the DOJ calls Russian propaganda in the United States. Is this a legitimate case of the U.S. government cracking down on foreign meddling in its own elections? Or is it an attack on the First Amendment flowing from the hoax and psychological operation known as Russiagate? Let's take a listen to my conversation with Aaron Matei. Right. So back in July, there was this raid in two states, in Florida and Missouri, of members of the African People's Socialist Party. And this raid came in conjunction with an indictment of a Russian national for allegedly acting uh, to sow discord in the U.S., the typical Russiagate uh, playbook charges. And the African People's Socialist Party, their members were raided in these two states because they were basically named in the indictment as unindicted co-conspirators. Some an alleged Russian agent seeking to basically uh, spread Kremlin propaganda in the U.S. And these members of the African People's Socialist Party were named in that indictment. Well, now, just this week, uh, those members of that party, four members, three of them are current members, one of them is a former member, were indicted. And here's the announcement from the Justice Department. U.S. citizens and Russian intelligence officers charged with conspiring to use U.S. citizens as illegal agents of the Russian government. Defendants sought to sow discord, spread pro-Russia propaganda, and interfere in elections within the United States. So first of all, look at what the Justice Department says they did here. Sow discord and spread pro-Russia propaganda. Putting aside whether they actually did that or not. Is that now illegal to, quote, sow discord and spread pro-Russia propaganda? Um, yeah, and how can an American interfere in an American election? Exactly, exactly. And what's actually being done here is the Justice Department is using the Russiagate playbook, which is to basically smear anybody who dissents from the national security state as a Russian agent to go after black radicals. And if you read the indictment, there's ba- they, they, they accuse them of not filling out a form uh, as agents of the Russian government. Uh, that's the actual charge. But the, the, the content of the indictment is basically goes after the content of their speech. It, 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 it mentions how they criticize the proxy war in Ukraine, how they point out that Nazis are incorporated into Ukraine's armed forces and we are funding those armed forces. It basically goes after the content of their speech. And what it says when it comes to an actual criminal offense is that they acted as, re- as agents of the Russian government without filling out a form to do that, when really all they have in the way of evidence is that these defendants interacted with some Russians and they received a pretty small amount of money for some of their activities. It's like but, several hundred dollars, right? Yeah. And, and they're, and basically, but this, what they, what they're doing though, is basically sharing opinions that they've been sharing for their entire political lives. And one of the defendants 
is Amalia Shatella, who's like in his 80s. He's been an activist for decades. And he's been saying this, you know, he's been criticizing U.S. government forever. But now what the government is basically saying that he's doing this at the behest of the Kremlin. And this is the result, the direct outgrowth of Russiagate, in which the national security state decided that basically whoever was not conducive to its interests, whoever was calling for diplomacy with Russia, whoever was challenging the imperatives of the CIA, that they were a Russian agent. And this is being dusted off to go after now these black activists. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that uh, after Russiagate, the whole hysteria had been stirred up. There was pressure at the DOJ to do indictments to back up what we've been constantly hearing from Maddow, from the mostly from the blue wing of the corporate media, but also from Adam Schiff, the Senate and House Democrats, which is that there were actual Russian agents of influence inside the U.S. who were interfering and sowing discord. Um, and constantly we heard that Black Lives Matter had been influenced by Russian bots, by the fraudmeister Clint Watts, who we'll talk about later, who's exposed as just a complete huckster at the head of this Hamilton 68 bot tracker. We constantly heard that. And so it's kind of baked into the liberal cake at the base of the Democratic Party that these cells exist very much like very, very reminiscent of the way that the Republican base believed that terror cells were everywhere. And they had been essentially told that by the president. And there was pressure on the John Ashcroft Justice Department, John Ashcroft applying the pressure himself to nab some Muslim leadership in the US, put them on trial and high profile trials and prove that they were taking down the network of terror inside the US. So that's what I think, this is a political case, um, but there's also pressure locally from the St. Petersburg Democrats, I think, this is my theory, they've definitely come out and supported this indictment to get rid of these troublemakers who are in their midst, who are constantly running in elections and mobilizing a small slice of the local black population for an independent party that is not part of the Democratic Party. And we know how the Democrats feel about independent candidates from Ralph Nader to Jill Stein. They want to destroy them by any means. And let's take the charges at face value just for a second. OK, so these black leftists are accused of taking, you know, hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands of dollars from some Russians for political activities. When foreign governments like, you know, Belarus or Russia or whoever else, you know, charge people in their country with acting as agents of the U.S., uh, the U.S. always cries foul and claims that this is, you know, a crackdown on, on freedom and the difference is that when the U.S. does it, they spend not hundreds or thousands of dollars. They spend tens of millions of dollars on trying to sow discord <laughs> abroad and trying to you know, use people for U.S. political goals. I mean, Victoria Nuland, in Ukraine alone, she bragged that the U.S. spent billions of dollars on promoting pro-Western forces, uh, which were then deployed for the 2014 coup. That's actual so, uh, malign influence and sowing discord because it leads to things like a coup in Ukraine. Here we're talking about some uh, random activists, you know, getting money for, in this case, uh, apparently the, some Russians gave them money for a speaking tour to say things they've always been saying. And now when, uh, and now the U.S. is doing, is charging people for what it condemns other governments of doing. So the difference is other governments 
uh, in the case of foreign countries, the U.S. spends tens of millions and in some cases, billions of dollars on those activities. Yeah, April 18th, uh, 2018, almost just a few days ago was the anniversary of April 18th, 2018, when gangs of hooligans took over large swaths of Nicaragua and laid siege to the country's economy and people left hundreds dead in order to overthrow the elected Sandinista government, targeted Sandinistas across the country. This is something I covered, interviewed victims of the violence. This was spawned by the U.S. By, through meddling in, the, in Nicaraguan politics, civil society, media, by laying the groundwork for insurrection in the words of a publication funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, the regime change arm of the U.S. government, which spawns coups, color revolutions, and topples uh, leaders the U.S. doesn't like through elections all, all over the world. This was a violent attempt to use illegal and some would say terrorist activity to overthrow the government of Daniel Ortega outside of democratic confines. And it was funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. This is a report I did uh, just two months into the what, what you could call rebellion, but was really a textbook insurrection. And I wrote about how Nicaraguan student protest leaders, you can see them here with like uh, Marco Rubio and Ileana ross Leighton, the former congresswoman from Florida. Um, they meet, met with neocons in D.C. And a publication funded by the NED boasts of spending millions of dollars laying the groundwork for insurrection. And here we have, you know, the receipts. This is on the new NED's website. I mean, these are hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, global Americans. That's the publication. Uh, then we have, you know, there's Ted Cruz meeting with the students. These students were brought up by Freedom House, which is another group funded by the U.S. government, funded by the U.S. taxpayer. Then here's more forms uh, to IEEPP, which is one of one of the major groups at the forefront of this violent insurrection in Nicaragua. Sixty thousand dollars, fifty-five thousand dollars from the NED, and then we had money from the USAID. This happens in countries around the world. And then the US goes and indicts people for getting a few hundred bucks from Russia and then using, deploying what they call propaganda, which is a completely neutral term and is basically prosecuting them for their speech, connecting them going on a conference in Russia, two things they said. So the point is the US spends millions and millions more than Russia did on this organization that the FBI is indicting. And the US does so not just to interfere in elections, but to actually carry out insurrections that make January 6th look like a Shriners parade. <laughs> and of course, like, what is this charge? It's going back to the McCarthy era, going back to the time when Dr. King was smeared as a Soviet agent. This is the classic playbook. And where are liberals on this? Liberals have branded themselves especially since 2020, when they used this to help get Biden elected as being for Black Lives Matter. I yeah. mean, supporting the George Floyd protests, using that as a get out the vote operation for Democrats. So where are they now when black activists are being smeared as Russian agents and being indicted for their speech? If you look at MSNBC, I've seen no coverage of this indictment at all, um, which is especially amazing given that when anybody gets you know charged or suspected of having anything to do with Russia, places like MSNBC are all over it. Like it, if there's any Russian agent develop, like related news, like the case of Maria Butina, for example, uh, that Russian lady who was imprisoned 
uh, for a long time because she allegedly failed to register as a Russian agent while going to Republican events. They were all over that case. She was smeared as a spy. In this case, there's nothing. And why is that? Because they know that they face a problem. So they promoted this Russiagate mania for whatever, six years. But they also know that, they also know that they've branded themselves as being pro-Black Lives Matter. Uh, but now you have a contradiction because your allies, th- their allies have been throughout this, the FBI and the CIA. Well, now the FBI is using Russiagate to go after Black activists. So the response, they can't condemn it because that would go after their traditional allies in the FBI. And also it would expose the real uses, the real goals of Russiagate, which is to smear genuine dissent to the national security state. So their only response is just silence. Yeah. Silence from not just the people who are depicted here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> Chuck Schumer and Kent Day cloth. Um, you know, but silence from the groups that, declared a rebellion for racial justice to destroy the virus of racism in the U.S. And uh, we're talking about Black Lives Matter, the organization itself. I don't think they've said anything about this. Um, what happened with Black Lives Matter after they their brand really took off and they got out in the streets and got waves of Americans out in the street? Well, here's what happened. $220 million from the Open Society Foundations, which is the foundations of anti-communist billionaire George Soros, who is hell-bent on regime change in Russia and is the top funder of the Democratic Party. So basically, co-optation, complete co-optation of uh, the major activists involved in BLM, including the figures like Alicia Garza, who've gone on high-paid lecture tours who just soaking in foundation money. They created that brand. And basically what they did was they co-opted themselves. They opened up the, the, they paved the way for the co-optation of a rebellion that started in places like Ferguson outside St. Louis and in Baltimore. And that didn't have a brand at that time. And they brought it back into the ranks of the democratic party. Uh, they brought black civil society back into the into the confines of the Democratic Party. And then they wound up the leaders of Black Lives Matter. They, the, these three women who founded it, they wound up endorsing Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. Here's the uh, long the uh, traditional CIA cutout known as the Ford Foundation. Well, it used to be a pass through for the CIA. I don't know what it does now. One hundred eighty million dollars uh, for. U.S. racial justice ex- efforts. Look at the date on this, October 9th, 2020. So basically, BLM had begun to die down because the election was coming up. And if Biden was going to be elected, then there would be no need for this movement any longer, which had already been corralled by the Democrats. So they're basically paying them to go home, to go away, go into little NGOs and do cultural critiques and go into universities and just stay out of the streets. That's what this is about. And so we can see that one of the few groups that's left in the streets that's actually out there that's condemning US empire, where, where do they get? They, what do they get? They get a militarized raid on the home of their leader. And an indictment threatening them with years in prison. Uh, and remember, during George Floyd, you even had senior officials from the Obama administration now, and now the Biden administration, like Susan Rice, getting out there to use the protest to fear monger about Russia and also basically send a tacit threat 
to the protest to keep them in line, to keep them within acceptable bounds, to denounce so-called extremism on both sides, basically painting an equivalence between so-called extremists even inside the Black Lives Matter movement. So this is Susan Rice using the Russiagate uh, boogeyman during the George Floyd protest. Uh, and they are probably also, I would bet based on my experience, I'm not reading the intelligence uh, today, uh, or these days, but based on my experience, this is right out of the Russian playbook as well. But we can't allow the extremists, the foreign actors, to distract from the real problems we have in this country that are longstanding, centuries old, and need to be addressed responsibly by new leadership. You're, you're absolutely right on the uh, foreign interference, because we know for decades, the Russians, uh, when it was the Soviet Union, the communists, they've uh, often, often tied, tried to embarrass the United States by promoting the, the racial divide in our country. But what you're suggesting, Ambassador, is that they're still trying to do that. Is that what you're saying? Well, we see it all the time. We've seen it for years and, and frankly, every day on social media where they take uh, any divisive, painful issue, whether it's immigration, whether it's gay rights, whether it's gun violence, and always racism, and they play on both sides. Their aim is not simply to embarrass the United States, Wolf. Their aim is to divide us, to cause us to come into combat with each other, to disintegrate from within. And I would not be surprised to learn that they have fomented some of these extremists on both sides using social media. I wouldn't be surprised to learn uh, that they're funding it in some way, shape, or form. Well, that kind of reminds me, I'm trying to find the video clip, but I can't find it, but like, Kamala Harris actually blamed Russia for Kaepernick taking a knee. On She was on The Breakfast Club. Can't find the video right now. But uh, yeah, that was consistent with, uh, you know, not just Maddow, but the black leadership that was brought into or around the Biden administration, blaming Russia for acts of black civil resistance. It was happening at the highest level. So, yeah. I got that Kamala clip. It's a, uh, it's a classic. Beautiful. So that's what they start to do, right? That's what they start to do. They did it then they will do it now. You know, people have said, if you look at, for example, the whole, Remember the whole, the heat that ended up around the bend the knee and Colin Kaepernick. Mm -hmm. Many think. smart people have said it actually was not a thing. Mm -hmm. The Russian bots started taking that on. <laughs> you feel like you're being targeted by Russian bots now? Well, we already know we are. Oh, man. The heat. She <laughs> can, She can barely even like articulate what she's trying to say, but she basically, she said that was not even a thing. In other words, there weren't these, there wasn't this protest that took over the NFL that eventually put so much pressure on the owners, including anti former anti civil rights protester and Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, that he actually had to get on the field and take a knee. That it was Russian bots who somehow made that happen. And I know where she got that from Hamilton 68. Yeah, of course. The whole thing, by the way, is like on top of being. Uh, just ridiculous. It's so fundamentally racist. It's so condescending toward black people. The idea, the presumption underlying all of this 
is that black people are so malleable that these uh, malicious foreign powers can manipulate to you know for their ends. So use them in the case of the African People's Socialist Party to spread pro Kremlin pro Kremlin propaganda, or in the case of Colin Kaepernick, that it's Russians that are behind that, not Colin Kaepernick and people who support him protesting real police violence to the point where Hillary Clinton was also saying that Russian bots were able to convince people not to vote for her in 2016. This is what she said. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have a lot of problems. And the thing we have to do is get enough people to turn out so that they can't, you know, steal those votes through suppression in Wisconsin or convince blacks not to vote in this. Convince blacks not to vote. Time, which was very effective and the Russians played a big role in. The, the Russians, Russians convinced blacks not to vote. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, she's just saying black people are stupid dupes. It's like when Kamala Harris went on, uh, I don't think it was The Breakfast Club or some other urban radio station, and she was just talking down to black people like they were stupid children and saying, Russia's a big country and Ukraine is a small country and the big country attacked the small country and that's why we have to defend the small country. Like, you clearly think that the base of the Democratic Party is stupid. If you're talking to them that way, um, and specifically black people, so yeah. <laughs> and and that, you know, like going back to your original point, how you started the segment, mentioning Jesse Jackson, you know, who was running for president in the 1980s and you know achieved some success, you know, attracted a movement of people. You compare who who the black candidates, the black politicians, who the Democratic Party elevates now, and it's all people like this: Obama, Susan Rice, Kamala Harris, who all talk down to people in a stark contrast to Jesse Jackson who wanted to uplift black people and uplift actually all oppressed people. Uh, and that this is who now the party features. It's people like Kamala and Susan Rice and, and Obama who talk down and also parrot these insane propaganda campaigns designed to undermine actual black leftists and actual leftists in this country. Well, let's hear from Omali Yeshitela. Look, I, I'm, I, I can't say that, uh, I'm speaking like with total affinity for this party or that I support everything they stand for, but they are an anti-imperialist party. And, you know, he, he actually, Omali's Yeshitela's uh, one of, one of the party members appeared at the rage against the war machine rally in February uh, and spoke there. And chairman Omali spoke at a rally a month later. Um, and, you know, I don't know if there's any, but he's here. He's speaking against the indictment. Uhuru. As it has been said, my name is Omali Eshatela. I'm chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and chairman of the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations. <laughs> On July 29th, at five o'clock in the morning, pre-dawn, an army of assault weapons toting, camouflage wearing, military forces identifying themselves as the FBI attacked my home. They, they used flashbang grenades, armored vehicles, they threatened my life and threatened my wife. They used drones. This was in St. Louis, Missouri, the most economically depressed sector 
of that city. At the same time, on the white side of St. Louis, they attacked a movement, solidarity movement, and they used battering rams also there, knocked down doors. They held people hostage, handcuffed at gunpoint, as they did me and my wife, who they, whom they handcuffed and zip-tied in front of our homes. They declare that despite the fact that I have been involved in fighting this system for most of the 81 years that I have been alive, this, this, despite the fact that I have opposed every predatory war that the United States, which by the way, is the strategic enemy of all of humanity, despite the fact that I have always done that, that they have declared that black people are so stupid that it takes Russians to tell us that we are oppressed. I have never known a moment of black freedom for my entire life. I have never read of a moment since the beginning of a colonial mode of production where black people have been free. And yet they're saying that we are working, we are agents of some foreign power because we say black people must be free. Because so, I mean, he's saying two important, making two important statements there. One, Russia doesn't need to tell him to condemn U.S. empire because he sees himself as an African person, as a target of U.S. empire, a victim of U.S. empire. And two, his home was targeted in a militarized raid with literal uh, robots, bomb robots, lasers, and a, a tactical SWAT team wearing full body armor, just invading his home with assault weapons out. This is an 80-year-old man. This is such overkill. It's so out of control. And so we are seeing the casualties of Russiagate in real time. You've been listening to my discussion with Aaron Maté about the Department of Justice's indictment of several members of the African People's Socialist Party. We'll now turn to an announcement by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. of a run for the presidency within the ranks of a Democratic Party that has grown extremely hostile to the politics he represents. It is a decidedly anti-establishment politics that questions the science that justified the lockdowns and mandates that made up the restrictions of the pandemic and that heavily criticizes the Central Intelligence Agency as well as the war state, the archipelago of U.S. bases abroad, and the Ukraine proxy war. RFK Jr. said that he will not stand for a Democratic Party that is the party of fear, censorship, and war. What will happen to him? What will they do to him for daring to throw down the gauntlet before this party? Take a listen to my discussion with Aaron Maté and to some excerpts from RFK's announcement. Well, staying on the topic of the CIA, uh, now we have a new Democratic candidate in the presidential race, and that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he kicked off his campaign with a speech calling out the CIA 
and the U.S. national security state? Yeah, I mean, it was a long stemwinder of a speech. And we'll talk about the meaning of RFK's candidacy or how I see it in a minute. But one thing that's important to note before we get into this is that if you look at the way that RFK is being described in mainstream media, they always call him an anti-vaccine activist. And his speech, in his speech, he spent much more time talking about the war state and what he is going to do about it and how he will foster peace and peaceful international relations than he did about vaccines. In fact, as our colleague Jeremy Lafredo pointed out, he only said the word vaccine once. Uh, he spent much more time on the harm of lockdowns and what it did to vulnerable communities in the U.S., poor communities, as well as the economy itself in driving inflation. Uh, but his, I clipped out much of his comments on the war state, and it was stirring, honestly. I have not heard a Democratic candidate talk, about, talk like this in my entire lifetime. So let's, let's hear what he had to say about about the CIA specifically. I mean, there were long comments about the Ukraine proxy war and I'll summarize some of them. Um, but this is, you know, stuff we say on the gray zone all the time. And my uncle came into office two months later. He was fighting his intelligence apparatus, his military, because they wanted to invade. Uh, I mean, they wanted to go do the Bay of Pigs. He was totally against it and he let them roll over him. And in the middle of the Bay Pigs, he realized they were lying to him. And he realized the function of the intelligence agencies had become to provide the military industrial complex with a constant pipeline of war. And he came out during the middle of the night during the Bay of Pigs catastrophe. And he said, I want to take the CIA. Alan Dulles had lied to him. Charles Cabell, Richard Bissell, Louis Lemitzer, uh, uh, Curtis LeMay had all lied to him through their teeth. And he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. We're cheering for the destruction of the CIA. And you know, George Bush, George W. Bush had the same problem. George W. Bush says the worst mistake he made as president was listening to CIA director George Tenet tell him it was a slam dunk that Saddam Hussein had uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so the neocons and CIA got to go into Iraq and throw out and do regime change. And, and we got not, now we've spent $8 trillion. And what do we get for that $8 trillion? Nothing, worse than nothing. Iraq is now much worse off than it was when we went in there. Well, he goes on to describe in, in, in the same way that I'd, did in the management of savagery, how the destruction of Iraq led to the rise of ISIS. He said, we created ISIS. RFK Jr. said, we created ISIS and it led to a migration crisis with millions of migrants heading to Europe, which then led to Brexit. And that was those were the exact same conclusions I drew in the management of savagery. Um, and RFK Jr. has hosted me on his podcast to talk about Ukraine. He's hosted Scott Ritter recently to talk about Ukraine. He even more recently hosted the Assange family, John and Gabriel Shipton, to talk about Julian Assange. This is someone who understands the war state as well as he as well as we do here at the Gray Zone, though he comes at it from a slightly different 
angle, Aaron, I know you got to go in a half hour. You got to start uh, the Jimmy Dore live stream. Yeah. Um, I just want to say quickly on this. It's interesting. So now we have two sort of dissenting Democratic candidates in the presidential primary, Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And Marianne Williamson, you know, I have certain I have a certain admiration for her personally. I, I, I like her personally, but her views on these issues having to do with foreign policy, uh, I find pretty abhorrent. And it's interesting to compare um, the reaction to her running in the race with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I mean, she, of course, was slammed for challenging Biden, but she's, I think, getting more attention and more favorable coverage than RFK is getting. And I think that has to do with not RFK's stance on vaccines, but his stance on the national security state, where he's an actual principled critic, whereas Marion Williamson, unfortunately, because I think it actually goes against the principles that she's, she espouses, buys into a lot of the propaganda uh, put out by the national security state. Yeah. Yeah. She was a huge supporter of the Ukraine proxy war, U.S. providing military aid and even got into shouting matches with people at uh, events supporting Julian Assange here in D.C. So, I mean, if you I, I think with RFK in there, I don't know what kind of appeal Marianne Williamson can actually offer uh, disaffected anti-war Democrats or progressives who are just disgusted with where the Democratic Party is going. In any case, uh, I'll let you let you go if you need to if yeah. you need to bounce. All right. See you soon, Max. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Good seeing you and uh, everyone. Check out Aaron on Jimmy Dore in about a half hour. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, some RFK highlights. Now, RFK uh, also addressed the Ukraine proxy war. And his comments were, I would say, more measured than I would have been. Um, he offered, first of all, praise for his son, Connor, who actually fought in the International Legion, which we've written about in the gray zone. And, you know, it's your son. So what are you going to, what are you going to say? He's, he's saying he's supportive of his son and he was supportive of the humanitarian goals as expressed in U.S. propaganda, but that in reality, this is not a war for any humanitarian end. It is actually about slaughtering Russians and sacrificing Ukrainians in order to weaken Russia. And that it actually has no end game. It's just another permanent war. And it's many of the same people who are around the neocons who are around. And he's hammering the neocons. Uh, I mean, we never hear anyone hammering the neocons anymore. I've been talking about that for a long on time. On the national stage. Except in, at least uh, within the Democratic Party. In the Ukraine since 2014. And then... Uh, President Biden's Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, validated President Biden's statement by saying that our objective in the Ukraine is to exhaust and degrade the Russian army so they're incapable of having battles anywhere else in the world. Now, and indeed, Many of the steps that we've taken in the Ukraine have seemed to indicate that our interest is in prolonging the war rather than shortening it. So if those are our objectives to 
have regime change and exhaust the Russians. That is completely antithetical to a humanitarian mission. If it's... If it... If we're there for a humanitarian mission, it means to reduce bloodshed and bring an end to the war quickly. If we're there to exhaust the Russians or regime change, then doesn't it mean that the Ukraine is just a pawn in a geopolitical battle between two great superpowers and that our strategy is to, is to put the flower of Ukrainian youth into an abattoir of death in order to exhaust Russia. And if that's true, then we need to know about it. If it's not true, then we need a pretty good discussion with the president and the secretary of defense and others to tell us exactly what are we doing there. And So to sacrifice the flower of Ukrainian youth in an abattoir of death in order to exhaust Russia, that's his perspective on the Ukraine proxy war. That's my perspective on it. This was a stirring address in which RFK, in my opinion, it was, it was stirring, maybe because I've been so disillusioned with presidential candidates over my lifetime, where he actually linked the war state to violence and oppression at home and invoked the Riverside Baptist church tradition of Martin Luther King breaking with the civil rights movement to condemn the Vietnam war, his own father's condemnation of the Vietnam war and the traditions going back to the founders, John Quincy Adams warning against seeking enemies abroad and going out in search of monsters to destroy. This uh, is something we will never hear from a Democrat. The Democratic Party is the party of war. Donald Trump, who's the most popular figure in the Republican Party, is currently de denouncing the neocons and denouncing the Ukraine proxy war. Um, maybe he's coming at it from a different angle than RFK, but no one else in the Democratic Party is doing this. And this really speaks to what the Democratic Party and its base have become. This was another episode of Gray Zone Radio. I've been your host, Max Blumenthal. I'm also the editor of thegrayzone.com, where you can see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter. That's the G-R-A-Y zone.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Weaver.